Welcome everyone to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. Today we are joined to talk about what makes a great producer. We have a very fantastic panel today and I want to introduce everyone. It is Lloyd Krask, Senior Producer at Nitro Games, Nikola Brazinski, Senior Producer at Preloaded, Arno David, a production consultant who has been most recently at People Can Fly and Remedy Entertainment, and Zach Bosberg, Live Ops Producer at Rovio. Everyone has brought a question to ask the other guests on what makes a great producer, and we'll have a roundtable coffee-style discussion. Let's get straight into some quick intros. I'll go with Lloyd. Lloyd, feel about yourself? Well, uh, I've been working in the games industry for past nine years now. Five years as producer of product owner roles, and mainly focused on mobile first person shooters. Lovely. And Nikki. Hello, uh, I'm Nikki. I've been working in the games industry for about seven years. Uh, I'm working on a range of products from sort of mobile applications through to websites, but also some really cool installations using um, mixed reality. And Zach? Yeah, hi. Uh, I've been in the industry now for six years and a uh, producer for two of those years. Got my start in player support. Uh, and yeah, I've been at Rovio the whole time, uh, currently working on the Angry Birds Friends game. Lovely. And finally, Arno. Yes, so uh, I'm Arno. I've been working as a producer for more than 15 years at this point. Um, I spent most of that time working at Arcade Studios and the Dishonored franchise. Um, but then a bit over... Uh, Six years ago, I moved to Finland, worked with the Remedy Entertainment for almost five years, quite a few AAA games there as well, including Control. Uh, and for the last couple of years, I've been working mostly as a production consultant on quite a few things with various European studios, including People Can Fly, as you said, Techland, and a few others. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Fantastic. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. So you have a question to ask the other guests. I'll start with Lloyd. Lloyd, what is your question and the context behind it? Hey, so my question is, uh, how do you say no to feature creep as a producer? The reason why I ask this is because this is probably one of the uh, learning topics. Uh, you've probably all heard we need X feature, or had you thought about adding Y or you should do Z. Um, and basically, how do you say no to these ideas uh, that increase scope and complexity? So let me ask a question first to answer your question. <laughs> what exactly, or how do you define exactly feature creep? Because depending on the companies, it can have slightly different meanings. In some companies, you try to establish the scope early on, and then any feature that gets added to the scope later on is considered feature creep. In some other companies, it's really like whenever people, especially programmers themselves, will decide to stealthily add new features without seeing any, anybody, which is even worse. So which one are we talking about here? I think the, the first one from external, uh, yeah, from outside of the project. Okay, thanks. All right. Thank you for the clarification. Um, Arno, do you want to start on this one? Uh, yeah, okay. That, that one uh, sounds like the easiest one to answer from my perspective. Uh, so uh, yeah, let's go. 
Um, and somebody who is already data-driven in general. And so usually it's a matter of making the math and showing people, hey, look, uh, we have the scope that's been defined so far this way for that reason, because we have that many people, we have estimates, time estimates on all the features, and we're supposed to fit like that number of features within that time, basically, depending on the number of people we have. If you want us to add this and that feature, it means that we'll have to kick out something else. Uh, or to lower the quality. And being able to come up with any tool you have, whether it is an Excel sheet or uh, some velocity metrics for your production management software, whatever is the, the data entries that you have and data points that you can show, will give you uh, leverage on that side and will allow you to push back on that feature creep or um, to arbitrate a bit better between the new requests versus what's been logged already. Uh, that's the only way I know to do that. And if I would say your work has been done properly, and I know that sometimes it's really tricky to get there, um, but like if you work with the right tools and, and the right estimates for um, your different features and your different content packs or whatever, it's kind of easy to um, to show pointers for what should be prioritized compared to, to what else in the game, from my perspective. Um, so I don't think it's, it's that hard if you have the tools to handle your scope properly. But that's just like from my perspective. And I understand that in some companies it can get harder than that to uh, to get those pointers. But yeah, that's how I would do, do it personally. Mm -hmm. What about you, Nikki? What do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think... Um... To be honest, the the main way that the best way I personally think to handle that that feature creep is is through user validation and user testing. And so, building on what you were saying, on around kind of data driven, like using that feedback from users as kind of really concrete data to say, okay, really analyzing the feature request, is this something that we need or not? And I think it's really interesting when you you know in the beginning when you're starting to think into the shape of a product and you've kind of there are going to be things that you prioritize and there's you know, Moscow is a is a really great tool for that. And I think as you go through each sort of gate through the production process, um, using those user testing sessions to ask really like inquisitive questions to kind of get a sense of where the product could go and what people find, you know, what your actual audience want and prioritize is a really great tool and mechanic for kind of managing those conversations internally as well. How about you, Zach? Yeah. Uh it is a great question, and I, I think I'm going to come at it from a slightly different angle. In that, um, at least within the context of of how I work with, which is which is with a uh, live operations mobile game, we're delivering content on a kind of a very frequent basis, so not as large scale, but still, uh, when we're doing feature development, what I found works great is really making sure there is ro robust pre-production that we lock down the design early, that we have the scope clearly laid out, and that all the stakeholders have had their chance to give their input, say what they think is is worthy. Um, and then once we start the production process, the, the saying no becomes really just about saying no, saying, look, we, this is the scope we've agreed to. If you want to change it, you need to make a really good business case. You need to show, I mean, again, with data, show why this is, why we should extend the scope and why we should uh, make these changes, but also always make sure everyone remembers that changes after the fact, you're, you might need to extend uh, your timeline and that's going to have a knock-on effect. So, um, but I think I've started to get a reputation in the team as being the guy who says no all the time. With how many times I've had to fight off these uh, scope incursions. How about you, Lloyd? Yeah, there's a uh, really great answers. And um, like the reason I asked is because this is like previously when I was uh, starting pr production, it was a huge failing of mine that I said yes to everything. And this uh, 
everything that you said is basically categorizing um, what I use now. But uh, because you always get these uh, scope requests from maybe community or, or your stakeholders or something like that. Um, I uh, basically what I do is I categorize that into three points. So I, I like to address their feedback like all the time. So hey. I've taken note of this. This is something I find good about it. And then I will um, take it on to kind of a second step, which is like, does this work? Does this idea work for the product that we're making? Uh, the vision, the market? Basically, does it fit with the game? Is it well referenced? Would it suit the player's style? And then uh, we take it onto design phase after that. So basically, everything goes in the same sort of pipeline, um, but gets a thorough look through before we we kind of know it um basically so yeah yeah i just wanted the something you said at the beginning there about how like when you started off you were saying yes to everyone and i think that's like such an easy trap to fall into because i think within the production crafts i mean we're 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 there to in many ways serve the team we want to facilitate things happening we don't want to have to say no because of course if there's good ideas we want to see those ideas come come to reality and and having to be a blocker to to anything doesn't feel great but then that is like such a skill to learn to to say no and recognize that saying no now also doesn't mean no forever. That great idea that's being brought up can it can be put into the backlog. It can appear in the roadmap further down the line. Um, you know, it's it's just right now we already know what need what we need to work on. Let's get that done first. Yeah. yeah so, so, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I think building off what you were saying, Zach and and Lloyd, like I think what's really interesting about feature creep and that kind of thing of like we don't you never want to be the person that says no, is that sometimes it can really help the team kind of look at a problem from a different angle. And actually, um, in analyzing the kind of rationale behind why that thing has been requested, you actually end up in some really great places with other solutions um, that can sort of fit within the scope, which is a really great thing as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, that's also something that for me has been a bit of a change of mindset over the years. The fact that um, working in AAA and going from a boxed product mindset to a game as a service live ops type of mindset really changed that where like back in the days, 10 years ago, I would say, uh, I actually had to say no. And that was a definitive no to a creative director uh, or a game designer or whatever. And now that's, that changed a lot. And now it can be, no, not right now, but look at like the live up schedule. And maybe that's something we can do. And, and then it's a lot more about um, consulting the right people, especially on the technical side, and see if it will require some code refactoring, in example, the, the, these things that you, you can factor in and, um, and take into account in, in planning the steps ahead. So as Zach said, uh, really having a really good backlog management really helps in that regard and turning a no into a maybe at some point it's possible and let's look at the priorities first yeah it's it, it's something that i i really wish i knew certainly <laughs> on in my career because uh when i was first making the first uh first person shooter that i had done on mobile uh that was already a bold task but then i said yes to kind of features that wouldn't add value or inherently to like player experience such as like spectator mode and stuff like that there are things that you do when you're successful, and um, it's it's really good to well, reflect on that and learn from the past, of course. Um, so yeah, um, and I think there are good ideas that you know are uh, that come up that you maybe you want to kind of circumvent through your pipelines. Um, maybe there's something that's oh yeah, we must do that. Um, and one tool I use is I actually like building a little bit of buffer into my uh, 
roadmaps now. So there's a bit of breathing space in case there's something manageable that can go in. Maybe we start the design on it early or, you know, um, to prioritize it in. That's also something that I would suggest. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask to that. Um in I think one of the things that has been really kind of something that I've wrestled with is um feature creep and how you balance like goal based goal based versus task based and like that that kind of tension in the backlog sometimes. Uh, and actually, you know, if you are a bit more goal orientated in how you um, articulate the tasks and then sort of supporting this using sprint structures rather than kind of really granular time estimates is something that I'm quite interested in because then it, it feels like you're giving that freedom to the team to figure out how to get to the solution without kind of really um, putting, you know, it becomes less about the, the time that you've set and more about like, okay, it's a goal-based approach of how do we get to that goal and what is, and yeah, the solution to, for the feature that we want to to achieve. I have one question. So in the how, just quickly before we move on to the next one, like in the how, like I can imagine being a game designer and having something happen three or four times and, you know, it's always a no. And I understand the data, the business, and it's just like, I don't know if it, has it ever been a situation where you need to like manage expectations like after the second or third time or like like where does that usually happen and how is that different to like a creative director asking for something like do you handle that conversation differently should you uh, Lloyd? Uh, I don't think you should uh, change your approach to dealing with the, the no like you should always explain like why we might not do this or, or like um, because people come up with ideas and Mostly, in my experience, they are uh, opinion-backed, not necessarily fact-backed, and um, that's fine. Uh, some of the good ideas come through opinion as well. Um, but by explaining the rationale like clearly to the person, it allows them to come back with a better maybe case for the next one that they uh, pitch to you. Um, and that's something that also builds uh, people's like, skill set as well, like uh, especially designers' uh, skill set. Nice. Very cool. I've heard one thing which I thought was a cool tip, but like some studios are going data-driven to everyone so people can like test their own input, like an artist can see how well their asset performed in the game. And then I feel like this could like be even more proactive and like you might not actually get a lot of features being requested because like, oh yeah, I actually know what happens on the business case and this probably won't happen. So um, I think that's something that yeah i can imagine your studio is in that position that just sounds like really cool but obviously that's like a, there's a lot to get to that situation but i think that's a cool uh, solution as well and i want to move on to the next question now which is from arno arno was your question and the context behind it yeah so my question was basically as producers how can we get better at balancing business goals and requirements versus creativity and originality uh, so the problem is that I don't have that much experience with the mobile side of things. I'm not sure how it works. I know that you guys have been splitting um, product management and project management for quite a while now. But the, this trend in AAA is quite recent. And uh, I've worked on many, many different projects that had basically no business requirements at first. And uh, there was no product management. The, 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 those game concepts basically came from creative people who just wanted to make the, their dream game. And more and more in AAA, what we see these days is that we have people who are product managers, product directors, and who will come up with very strong business goals, business mandates. 
Uh, and even if you don't have a dedicated product manager, uh, some executive producers will do that. Um, and more and more, I, I see people leaving the AAA industry to go more towards indie or AA because they feel like they cannot be creative anymore or not the way they want to be creative because they feel like a lot of the decisions made on the projects are dictated by the business side of things and the creativity gets overlooked. And so my question to you all is how do, as producers, as project managers in general, I would say, how do we balance those two different things to make sure that we, we get an optimal, outp optimal output from the team? Interesting. I want to start with Lloyd on this one. All right. So very good question. Um, so I, I think it starts by stemming from like having a very good understanding of like what the business's goals are. Like, and that requires like transparency on that kind of company level. Like for instance, I have like one-on-one -on -one meetings with my superiors and I am basically able to like clarify my plans versus the company strategy and tweak and amend them as I see fit. And then out of that, I'm able to go back to my teams and then I'm able to propose them or at least shine a light on, hey, what we're doing, what we're aiming for. And on the point of uh, creativity and originality, I think like I'm a firm believer in having very strong reference, which might not uh, the best thing for most people, most creatives, but I think it's important. Um, so my rationale is don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, you build the solid foundation and then you spend the remaining time that you have just saved by building the solid foundation and using 20% of that as innovation or creativity. And actually like a point I was playing last night, the, the finals, I don't know if you played it. Um, at its core, it's a very much a battlefield experience. Um, it takes all the pieces that work from Battlefield, which makes sense because they're ex-Dice guys. And I was really more drawn into the innovation that they had. The destruction system was way more like night, well, uh, smaller, and uh, it was faster paced, more like COD. The game world was more arcade. It just drew me in a little bit. But fundamentally, it still got all them kind of meta layers that you would see in these kind of shooters. So, yeah. I believe that uh, with a strong reference and a little bit of creativity at the end, I think you can find that balance. Nice. Uh, yeah, I think just two cents before I move on there. I feel like it's really cool. Like you can highlight the innovation that's happening on the micro level as well. Like perhaps on the macro level, it's not a brand new grain breaking, but like just highlighting the fact that each micro thing you can do, like you can have its own creativity. And if you give that ownership, right? Uh, lovely. Uh, let's go to Nikki. Yeah, really great question. I think I'm sort of quite in a fortunate position um, that so Preloaded's um, mission statement is play with purpose and we're really lucky to partner with a great range of clients. And so I'm quite fortunate in the sense that I think our clients are really great at kind of owning that creative brief and those requirements and those goals. Um, and I would say it's very much about like balancing it. I would I often lean on the process. And so we go through you know, discovering concept phases, planning phases and production phases. And actually, um, you know, that's a really great way of like drilling into the why of the requirements and making sure that there's a shared ownership across the whole team as to, to why, you know, why we're trying to target these certain KPIs or what, what we want to achieve. And then from that, I think actually comes a lot of the original, originality and creativity because you're sort of defining a very clear box for people to, to be creative and to play in um, and like you know particularly thinking to the um, Alice exhibition the VR that we did for for the VNA 
you know, that was a really, that was a fantastic brief of we want to do something for Alice for the 150 year celebration in VR. Um, and that's, that's so broad. And yet, you know, we, through the process of kind of drilling into the requirements and understanding, you know, how, how long is it going to be? Where is it going to sit? All of these fantastic questions. It actually opened up the project and, and enabled the team to like produce a really fantastic original piece of VR. Um, so yeah, I think I always sort of rely on the process and I think, you know, clients are a fantastic gatekeeper for those requirements and those business goals as well. How about you, Jacques? Yeah, um, I, I agree a lot with what Nikki just said. And I, I think, I mean, I, I come from a very privileged position that the, the game my team works on, it's been out there for, I think, 12 years now. And there's really nothing else like it on the market. So we get a lot of opportunity sort of to be creative and original anyways. Uh, we don't have a lot of peers to look to. But even then, like internally, we we make sure that our business goals are just that their goals. They are the guiding light that we want to align ourselves to. But then we need to let our our sub teams and our designers sort of find the best the best path forward towards that. Um, and I think another part, another thing that we found that's really worked is we make sure also that we have many voices in discussions. Like you want to have a discussion about business, and of course we we look at the numbers, we look at our KPIs. Uh, but at the same time, we want to make sure there's an art, artist voice, there's a develop, there's a designer voice, uh, there's a programmer voice, because they're all going to have different insights and different perspectives and different solutions to the problems we're facing. And uh, yeah, I think ultimately it's that it's balance that 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 help. Like it's it's answering the question with itself. How do you find a balance? Well, you have balance. But I think that is what it boils down to is uh, making sure that the business goals aren't the be-all, end-all of your design process, basically. Uh, Zach, practically, like, how does that work? Because I've heard like it's quite difficult to actually get that in practice where everyone's you know, happy to speak up, equal amount, you know, no one's dominating. And obviously, as a producer, that's some one of your responsibilities. So I was wondering, like, how do you actually, what's that process for you? Like, would you have any tips? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to team culture. And that is a, of course, difficult thing to shape. But um, just, yeah, making sure you ensure that team culture where where people do feel empowered to speak up um and i think as a producer too like i I try and keep an eye out for for different meetings and see hey is there someone who might be missing from this can i can i go and tap on someone's shoulder and say you'd be great come on over let's let's hear your voice in this as well so uh, because not everyone in the team might realize like who else in the team would have something to contribute and i think that's where as producers we have that that oversight of everyone we can see everything that's going on and, and we can step in when necessary yeah i think just to build on that zach as well like um i really i really love what you're saying around like diversity of, of voice and i think um one of the things that i get quite into and quite um quite obsessive about is like what are the different ways of running meetings and like how can you approach those conversations to empower those voices as well to provide that balance um rather than kind of just like relying on the default um way of running things as well i just want to take this to arna but i've actually got a couple of questions on this but i want to give it to arna first um like have you found this uh, problem well i guess once again coming from triple a uh and uh like really thinking about the question that is the underlying question to that entire podcast session which is what makes a good producer or a great producer um and I found myself in quite a few uh, few times, like interviewing people and realizing that they worked in companies that uh, in which I had friends, an example, and reaching out to those people, asking, "Hey, what do you think about that guy who you worked with?" And sometimes, for a single person, uh, it, whether you ask a developer and a manager, an example, you will have two very different perspectives. 
And I tend to see, once again, in on the AAA side of things, I tend to see two very different trends, which is the producer who will be a yes man to the hierarchy. And whenever something business-driven comes to their plate, they will always prioritize that. And usually those people are really well perceived by the top management uh, of the company or the clients, the publishers, whatever. And when you ask the the team level, uh, the development team, people will tell you, oh, no, that, that guy, like, he's he's sold, basically. he He's terrible. He never thinks about us. Uh, so depending on who you ask, you, you get very different answers. And the opposite is also true, where you have some producers who will consider that their job is to shield the team from purely business-driven decision-making. And they will be great usually at avoiding people getting burnt, burnt out uh, or... Um, as we discussed before, like uh, avoiding feature creep or that kind of stuff. But usually those people who are really appreciated by the development layer, they are they don't get that much love from the top management because they, they feel like they are just a pain in their ass and, and not getting uh, where they're supposed to go. Um, so that, that's really interesting that uh, you don't have one single universal definition for what a great producer is, depending on, uh, you know, like where we stand on that issue. So yeah, that's pretty much where I come from. Um, yeah, over to you, Lloyd. Yeah, I, I, I think there's some really good uh, points about it. Yeah. And, um, I definitely agree, like, giving developers a space to, like, be creative and, like, take features and make them their own, basically, is, like, vastly important. Um, one example I have is, like, the we have an amazing uh, UI artist in, in the nurse, and basically you give a pretty, you know, um, simple UI or simple task that it's like, hey, make this, you know, um, particular feature. I don't want to outline anything that we're doing immediately. But, um, and she just really bring it to her own through creativity. And like, then the team gets involved in Slack and we're all trying off like ideas. And I think that's like having a team that is, um, you know, so open like that is uh, probably keeps the originality and the kind of creativity like flowing. Um, yeah. I think that ownership is very important i feel like when you're a cog in a machine that's when you start to look elsewhere right i mean if you have that ownership of your feature despite the guardrails of business if you can control at least that part i feel like that you know is at least one thing you can do uh anna yeah that is something i really uh, i was convinced about that a few years ago but i worked with so many people who are actually really happy to just be a cog in the machine and just want to do what they're told and not not ask questions or not even be very creative you know they just want to have a day job and like they have task lists assigned to them they just do them and and that's the end of the day so on here I, I think we are really touching upon the matter of company culture and how much uh, uh you that your the company you work for is empowering people allowing them to make their own decisions impact their own work and how much that works with you or not, and how adequate of a company culture it is for you or not. Um, but that's a slightly different topic, so I want to... I think it's important, yeah. though, because yeah. like, it, it's case by case, and I think you can't have a blanket... I mean, that's proof that you can't have a blanket approach, right, to everyone. Or um, One thing I wanted to ask to follow up on this, like, because um, I think we spent a good amount of time on like speaking to the people um, that you're managing, but I guess higher up, like, if a business goal deep down you know, because you or a producer usually have a lot, you're closer, right? You have a bit more context. Like if you have a business goal, which is just not a good one, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense or it's just like, it's just either too ambitious or it's missing a key part 
like how do you handle that conversation or because we you can't always say no but i'm guessing like you need to have some pushback right like uh, like arno said like you want to balance uh, so i wonder how do you handle those conversations uh lloyd yeah uh, this kind of loops back into like my things from before where i said yes to everything uh, but it's you can say no like you should say no because ultimately like you want to deliver the features or the game on whatever particular milestone you're at for the business. Um, but at the same time, you want the team to be able to celebrate. Um, so there is a like a very delicate balance there. And I, I, I see my responsibility a lot towards the team. Like I am, you know, make sure I'm shielding them from, you know, doing crazy stuff and making sure that I filter the stuff, the noise. You know, and that, in my opinion, is noise that you should be able to push back on. And if you have a good company culture, they will respect that and understand it. And um, yeah, that's that's how it is. It's like data driven, but the other way around, right? You just like here's what's going to happen if we do this. Maybe no, <laughs> uh, Nikki. Yeah, I was just going to say actually as well. Like you know, the thing the thing with like goals and requirements is they can shift as well, and they can change. And actually. Um, you know, it's fascinating when you look at the goals that you set out with and then you get to the end of the project from the retrospective and you go back. Um, and so I think being open to that, to those things shifting and changing, I think particularly as well, like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like when you validate with an audience and they sort of, that that's the best way of putting them to the test. Um, and so I think, you know, the, there's something in balancing them about also being open to the fact that requirements and goals can shift and adapt over time as well. I think this comes back to the importance of a buffer as well, because for like even here, like buffer is even like I've I think buffer would have solved a lot of producers' problems. And like the bigger you can get that buffer, and this is from an outsider just hearing what happens, like the buffer is, is king if you can get it, I feel. Um cool. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, which is from Zach. Zach, what is your question and the context behind it? Yeah. Uh so my question is what is a personality trait or something similar in the intangible quality that, that you would look for in someone that either wants to become a producer or maybe is being considered for, you know, to be hired for a for a production role. Um and the the background of this question is we actually recently in my studio did a bit of an exercise where we were thinking about really this topic, what makes a great producer and like if we had to replace ourselves what would we look for? Um, and of course, it's easy to sort of get into, okay, well, they know agile production and they, they, uh, you know, not, not, they know how to use Jira and Confluence, all this kind of like skill based, but that gets me thinking, okay, well, what does though make a great producer? What are those qualities of a person that that's going to prepare them to, to excel in that role? So we'd really love to hear what you guys have to say about it. I want to start with Nikki on this one. Um, yeah, really good question. And I've I'm, I've got two words and I'm so, I think I might be a bit uh, cheeky and say curiously creative um, as the quality or trait. And I think, um, I think the reason for that is I think often it's production can be seen as not a very creative role. And I actually think it is a really creative role. And, and to be a good producer, being curiously creative means that you can really help support the team in like how you approach and solve problems like understanding how to adapt and shift processes over time as you make things how to handle kind of running meetings and opening up discussions to get the best from the team um and also i think it does kind of make you inherently interested and care about the thing that you're making as well um and you know i think all of those things combined 
um that's absolutely what i would look for is someone that's curiously creative and kind of doesn't mind asking why or challenging things as to you know the, the status quo of like well if we've always made things this way why have we made them this way and being able to bring that creativity to problem solving and, and really challenge how things get made as well lovely Arda, thoughts on that yeah this one is the trickiest questions of all of your questions, guys, I have to say. Uh, I, I thought a lot about it, and every day I came with a different answer, so it's really hard for me to uh, to come up with one straight answer to this. I, I think I will keep two different answers to, to that one. Um, the first one is, uh, I, I, would I would say, someone who is not too passionate, because where I come from, um, working in games, you have a lot of super passionate people. And the problem is that when you talk about passion, uh, passion means like it's close to your heart and uh, means that a lot of decision making will be based on feelings instead of be based on facts and data. And as a producer, I think it's important sometimes to look at the, the harsh truth in the eye and try to make decisions that are a lot more data based. And in that sense, I'm not saying it's bad to be passionate. I am saying you need to put your own personal feelings about the product, about the people you are working with or working for put those feelings aside and look at the situation in a very um, straight, matter-of-fact way to make better decisions. So that, that would be my, my first answer. And that's something it's really hard to assess how people can do that during an interview, obviously. So that's the kind of stuff that you need to assess um, during, during, a, uh, during a trial period, an example. The, the other side of the coin, the, the other thing I would come up with uh, is actually something I try to detect in interviews when I have to hire a producer. Uh, and this is being honest, being um, uh, really no a no-bullshit type of person. Uh, I like in interviews to ask questions to people, and I know already they don't know the answer. But just to, to assess if they will say, okay, I don't know about this, tell me please, which is the honest answer. Or if they will try to make up something on, on the go. And for me, that's always a red flag. When someone tries to come up with something, I know there is no chance they know the answer to that. And they still try to, for me, that's a red flag. Uh, and in my experience, those people with me, at least in, in the work dynamic on a daily basis, that will not work out because I would end up in a lot of situations where I won't know if I can trust what they say or if they have some kind of ulterior motive or agenda or whatever. And I, I won't be able to rely on those people the same way as I can with people who are the no bullshit kind uh, and, and who will be straight to you and you can always trust what they say. So yeah, I think these are my, my two um, my two different main things for uh, what, what would make a, a great producer. I, although I have to say, I agree with with what Mickey said before. And uh, people, sometimes you, you run into people who are not creative at all. And for a producer role, that can be a problem. So creative problem solving is definitely a big part of the job. And in that sense, I will agree with her. Yeah. Lloyd, what do you have for us? Yeah, so I, I, I wanted to tackle it from the angle of like, um, uh, somebody who's in a current role and moving to production, which is also what I did. Um, and I would say like proactivity or proactive nature is super important to me. Um, so they do tasks or improve processes without being asked, or they want to, as Nikki said, want to do, want to always uh, challenge the status quo. They're checking on the team regularly. They're attentive to details and they're always getting involved. Like, they're just curious. They want to understand, they want to learn, they want to de-risk, all those sort of things. And that's, like, uh, quite humbling when you see it, like, fresh. Um, because usually you see it before, basically, that they want to become a producer. 
uh, or so I found. Um, but it reminds me that you can always learn so much from uh, you know new producers. Uh, I've seen so so many great examples of this at my time at Nitro, and people have transitioned from uh, through to production roles, and they've gone on to be like some great names in the industry. So super proud of them. And I have one current example who I'm not really working on, but <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that they take the lead and. Um, because they they take control of like all the processes that they see aren't working, and they are attentive to the team and the product, and they're constantly playing the game and seeing if the quality is there, and asking all the right questions. And you know, like that's that's just a, a glimmer that the future of this person might be in production. So yeah. Yeah. So actually, uh, at this point, I need to ask you: Have you ever worked with someone who was in a production or project management role and who was not proactive? Because my feeling—I might be wrong here—but my feeling is that if you are not the proactive type of person, you just will not go towards that that type of job. Uh, as I don't think I've even among the very junior people I worked with, I don't think I've ever worked with someone who was completely passive, not proactive at all. I mean, I, I would love to answer that because I—I think I have seen that. But generally, it's not the it's not the junior producers where it comes from. It's the senior. It's the ones who get complacent, who've been either on the same project or the same role for a long time, and they've lost the spark, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, they're they're happy to just kind of let the gears keep turning, uh, and as long as it isn't bro- broken, they're not going to fix it. But my experience, there's always something broken. There's always something that can be fixed. Okay, interesting. I've never worked with that kind of people, so maybe I'm lucky here. I think it's the AAA because it's like. Boom, finished, box, move on. But sometimes if you have like a 20-year game, uh, yeah, maybe it gets cushy after like uh, five years. And that's not a personal attack uh, to anyone here. It's just like, it's just one of those, right? Uh, you need to always have that hunger, I feel. Uh, Lloyd. Yeah, I think Zach now did. I, I have seen it quite a bit. Um, like people who may be unsuited for the exact rule. And um, that's like, uh, I would say... I have seen it in more senior roles, um, and that's that's why I say there's always so much to learn. Like that, continue to be curious, continue to be proactive, continue to ask questions. Like it's it's something that like every time I see a junior producer and they're like constantly asking questions or you know like why are we doing it like this? It's it's just it's just humbling and and like it's it's nice to see. And I, I'm like yeah, why are we doing it like that? Um, we. I've seen so many processes change uh, over the years, and it's it's just, yeah, it's yeah, it's very nice to see, and I I hope I never lose sight of that. I really. Yeah, actually, I was thinking about this specific topic and about junior producers. That happens quite often that I have to tell the more junior profiles I work with, like, hey, hold your horses here, like you are almost being disruptive because of how proactive you are. So yeah, I've been like more on the other side. Hey, you need to be a bit more. Uh, you need to to harness your chaos, basically. Mm. Mm. Um, guys, I think just to follow up on this question before we move on to the next one, like if we're looking for this trait, what type of questions do you think we could ask in an interview? I don't know if any come to mind to like reveal, because I feel like you know no one's going to put in on the CV. Sorry, not many people will put on their CV like oh here are my personality traits, right? So I was wondering like how do you get a feel without doing the trial if we can help it we can take our time on this one. Lloyd I I think it's well so proactivity I, I, at least I think it shows in people's willingness to do a little bit of research like what have you released previously hey have I have said but have, have they actually you know delved into maybe some of the things that they would change 
and approach you with them. Um, I've seen it once or twice, and it's it's that's really interesting to see. It's probably goes into Anna's uh, point of like being honest, like you know somebody who's willing to come up to you and say like hey. Like, why are you doing it like this in an interview? It's uh, pretty... They tend to do well in interviews, so um, from a first-hand perspective, yes. uh, harder. Yeah, um, I, I really like in interviews to have... Um, not, role play is probably not the, the right word, but, you know, like, ask about very specific situations and ask people how they would react, how they would solve that specific situation. Uh, and putting them into a, a imaginary situation where they would have to display proactivity to solve a problem uh, might be a, a good way to do that. Can you give uh, us an example? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, some, something like, uh, hey, so um, you are reaching the initial shipping phase for a game. Uh, you are going to early access with that game. And uh, you understand that uh, some aspects of the meta game is missing at, th at that point. And you don't have uh, anyone on the team who has the bandwidth to do it. So you are in a you're blocked, basically. You, you don't know how to proceed with that. You just know that you need to have uh, a design for a metagame. Uh, how would you handle that? And asking them, like, hey, who would you reach out to? How would you do this? How would you do it? What would be the process? What is your mindset behind that? That would be a, a typical, like, small uh, situation, imaginary situation. I would ask in an interview to try to assess that kind of stuff. So just to double click on this, like what character traits do we get from that? If that makes sense, like is there something specific that you're looking for um, as the interviewer there? I, I think uh, that would allow me to assess quite a few things. First, how much the candidate understands um, the different people who would be involved in on that side of uh, of a game development. Uh, both in terms of creativity and technically how it's developed and implemented in the game. Uh, but also how they would push those topics on, on the different uh, crafts uh, across the board. So yeah, I, I think that's, and that, that's just like on the top of my head in, in like just a few seconds, obviously. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we can think of many different situations uh, that we could ask about. But yeah, like that would be a pointer at least now, it's cool to hear your thought process behind it because i think it'd be interesting to people listening um nice uh lovely if we're ready we'll move on to the next and final question which is from nikki nikki what is your question and the context behind it thank you so my question is how do you how do you disseminate knowledge across your studio as a producer and the context for this is um I obviously, as part of Preloaded, we do a lot of varied work. And so no project is the same. And so I've got a personal vested interest in like, how do you take the learnings from one thing and sort of apply that across the organization um, so that, you know, you can keep, can, can keep improving and, and keep reflecting back on how you've made things. Lovely. I want to start with Zach. Yeah. Uh, that is, as all these questions have been a really good question. <laughs> um, it's it definitely a challenge. Um, I mean, we, we've tried to use Confluence, Slack, different ways to, to make sure information is available and, and, and people can reach it. But uh, one thing that we started doing the past last few years uh, that's been great is we've actually we've developed what we call our, our production community. So we get in our studio all our producers together once a quarter. And we, we have to spend a whole day together. Usually we've prepared some topic, but it's a place for us to share the learnings from our, from our individual projects about what's been working, what hasn't been working, uh, things we've learned as producers that would, would might help others, uh, but also then in general, just what in each project is is working well or isn't. And um, it's really been great to just kind of like, before before we had this, I would say each 
team or each producer was maybe a bit siloed. We didn't cross communicate as much, but just getting everyone into a workshop for the day, into a room and talking about how things are going just once a quarter was all has already made a big difference in making sure that those learnings are shared. Okay. Uh, what do you find valuable as part of that? Like day, is there something specific that you'd give us advice rather is like, is there anything specific that you find valuable from that? Um, maybe you can rephrase the question. Yeah. Sorry. So like from, cause let's say you have in that workshop, um, with all the producers, like mm. what would you suggest to get the most out of that day? Like, cause it could be four producers, which I think is a lot more manageable. But if you have like 10, 30, um, like, is there any tips or from that you've had, like what makes a good kind of workshop in that case? Um, I mean, it's, it's a room full of producers, so we definitely know how to produce each other. <laughs> we, I, I'd say, I mean, for the scale of what, what, for what we're working with, we have maybe, I think eight of us. Um, but again, generally it's setting sort of a clear theme for, for the, for the meetup. Like we'll, we'll have a period where we go over hot topics from everyone in the beginning, but then the rest of the, the session will be, we have a theme we want to dig into. Like again, recently we had this topic of the DNA of, of a great team and a great producer and, and how would you replace a producer on your team? Um, and so we get everyone to sort of like focus on that, share, share their, their thoughts and discussions just sort of springs up from that. And, and that creates new learnings in itself. Yes. A bit like today. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Um, Lloyd, thoughts on this? Yeah. So we've also tried sharing all the knowledge across confluence and stuff like that, but uh, I think nothing really beats just face to face. Like, um, so I was actually going to say exactly what Zach was going to say. Um, we've done these lead, uh, re- uh, retreats and meets and by long tours, uh, sorry, every other month. And, um, the, these are like great places to kind of open up to one another and break down the silos, which we see inside those. Uh, house and recently like it's been like a great success basically like we have a common goal we have common understanding and it just allows you to kind of when we're outside of that reach out to people and just ask questions like honestly earnestly you know so i think it starts with the trust component and then one like trick i have at least is that like just invite people to lunch you go to lunch with a few people one-on-one and and just have no agenda and people end up talking like about you know the stress that they might have or something that they need help with and that's where you can kind of help them out or you know maybe you have something that's stressful to you or you need help with and yeah sharing is scary so yeah more better over lunch so. uh, lovely love that uh arno have you had experience with this? Yeah, actually, that, that's kind of funny because every time I end up in a conversation with several producers, we end up talking about knowledge management and, and how challenging it is. Uh, so this is just like a, a huge trend for us, I guess, uh, for our role. Um, I would say that I slightly disagree with what uh, Zach and Lloyd said before. Um, I think uh, face-to-face is important when you want to disseminate information in the sense like like to do information, to inform people. Um, But some knowledge is not something that needs to be disseminated. Uh, Some knowledge needs to, to live in a place like Confluence or whatever and be accessible but not be pushed on people. And I think that's a, a critical part of the knowledge management issue. Try to uh, to spot what type of information needs to be shared uh, and to be pushed on people 
what information just needs to be shared openly, tell people, hey, if you are looking uh, for this, this is where you, you can find it, but not push it too hard on people. And what needs to live somewhere, uh, be accessible, you don't even need to notify people about this. And learning how to spot these three different categories and and how to make sure that it's easily reachable for all the people involved, especially when you have bigger team sizes. I don't know how big are your teams, but I've been dealing with projects in which we had 100, 200 people working together. And um, making sure that you, you can make that distinction is really critical. Um, so yeah, in knowledge management in general, is one of the few harder things we have in, in the sense that uh, it's challenging. Uh, you know, there's always like what is complex versus what is hard. In general, game development is not a hard thing to do. It's a complex problem to solve. But knowledge management in itself is definitely something hard, something challenging. And there is no other way to solve it than dedicated time and resources to do it properly. One of the things I've been doing quite successfully is try to embed the whole uh, knowledge management initiative in the pipelines and processes. So basically you have a task, part of the delivery for that task is provide the documentation that goes with it, identify the people who that documentation will be useful to, and tell them about the documentation. Whether it is about the tools, about the features, about some content that you did add to the game, whatever it is, make sure that it's part of the whole development process to document things and communicate to the people who it's, it is relevant to. Um, but it's, it's not a magic thing that will solve all of the problems that have to do with knowledge management. So, yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't know the seat of Buddhas here. It sounds like we need a combination of things. Uh, Zach, thoughts? Yeah, well, that, that's a really great point you brought, you brought up. Um, and actually, like one of the things I myself struggle with is sort of, okay, we, we have our collection of information on console, let's say, or, or documented somewhere. It's there, it's available. We try to make sure people know it's there but they still don't go to it. So I'm wondering if anyone has good advice, especially like if you think outside a team and more on that studio level or like the larger organization, you know, if we're talking about sh sharing uh, um, best practices and things like that, how, like, how do you make the information not just like having a good repository, but making sure that people also know where to find it and making sure they also take that initiative to go find it rather than just wait for information to come to them. Uh, I, I react very quickly to that because I experimented a bit with this. And one thing that I found to uh, to work quite well was to actually uh, create some time for people, for the teams at large, dedicate some time to read documentation. And uh, actually, when, uh, when I was working at Arcane, we had at some point, I think it was in the first Dishonored, we had Free Fridays where people were supposed to be able to uh, to come up with ideas, suggestions. First of all, it was about like playing the game and making suggestions on how to improve the game. But part of that was also, hey, take at least a couple of hours to go through the docu documentation and read the new things in there, and maybe even comment on the different pages, give some feedback, give, th give some thoughts. Uh, so very often, if you ask people, why didn't you read this? It's because they have too many things to do. They, they have deliveries, they have goals, deadlines, and they think they don't have the time to read the documentation. So creating space in the calendar dedicated to documentation reading actually helps with this, in my experience at least. Lloyd? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to just like throw a question out there because it, it, at least in mobile development, what I've, what I've experienced is that the feature that you start building is definitely not the feature that you end building. So if you're documenting it as you go along, it's 
it, it's almost like you're taking more time doing the documentation of that feature than you are like actually building the feature. And like this can be like months apart from one another as well. I, I definitely do see it as an issue. How, how you know, for me at least, like I think it's better to for a practical approach that you get the team to share the kind of knowledge inside of itself, basically. So you get all the programmers to, you know, like share how some sort of function within the feature works. Hey, well, now we have that shared knowledge across us, and then we can pass it, pass it on. But when we're kind of documenting it, it seems like uh, I experienced what Zach's experienced, which is like you don't have the time to read it, and you don't have the time to update it, and you know, like it's it's a um, yeah, it's a kind of snowball basically. So how would you deal with that? I feel like I have a definition problem as a non-producer here. So like knowledge, disseminating knowledge. So it's like documentation is like could you. Does knowledge count as something that's just happened? And like this feature is done and for people coming into the project, that is documented. Hey, go read that. I'm guessing we're including this in this discussion, but what about like a production tip or like this is how this game designer does this process, which is very, very efficient. And he's wrote how to do that on Confluence. Like these are two different things in my head. Um, is it both we're covering here? I would cover everything. Like mm. w- what we do. How do we do it? What is the current status? And even one thing that we tend to overlook and sometimes causes big issues is why didn't we do something? Mm. Uh, very often we don't document what we don't do, uh, why we didn't make a spe- specific decision, in example. And if you don't document that, months later you will have someone who will ask, hey, but why, why didn't we do it? And nobody remembers because it was not documented. Mm. So I, I would cover everything as part of the knowledge management. Yeah. That, that, that is so accurate. And I mean, in my case, it's not even just months later, it's years later. Uh, again, 12-year-old game, We I've spent so much time going through all documentation, trying to understand what were these people doing back then? Why did they make this decision? <laughs> why, why is this feature the way it is? Uh, because again, like the team goes through so many changes too. So uh, I'd say it is like, it's really imperative to, to carve out the time for everyone to update documentation, even your own. Like as, as a live operations producer, I processes I follow on a daily basis for setting up game game configurations or um, you know planning a b testing schedules and uh, I know I need to to write this stuff down because otherwise no one's going to know how any of it works yeah now it was you Nikki yeah it's, uh, it's really interesting hearing hearing all those reflections because I think firstly definitely absolutely going to steal the production community uh, I think that sounds incredible and also Arno to your point around like the different types of knowledge i think is definitely something that I'll, I'll reflect on after this in terms of like yeah like what 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 is the purpose of this thing and what well, how does it need to live and where does it need to live um and yeah i just think in terms of of lloyd your point around like th- like that practical sharing i think one of the things that i definitely want to reflect on after this is like how to utilize your team members to also become a bit like a mushroom network you know like become people that then take that knowledge and kind of do a bit of that as well i think is 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 yeah this is this is really great thank you i have one thing to share because i actually have a recent experience of this so i had a good feedback for a contractor that recently started where he started putting a lot of learnings that he had on google's confluence and then that actually triggered another game designer to do the same and then it had a bit of a snowball effect because people were actually using it so i think there's a clear I think what doesn't what gets measured gets happens and with this one this is very clear not an incentive for me unless it's a promotion or my manager is going to bring this up 
because I'm literally giving knowledge to someone else. I won't. It's literally taking time away from possibly doing my task. So like a recruitment example here, one of our values at Evolution is collaboration. So if I'm just never doing anything for my colleagues, it will be highlighted. But if that's not something that happens on a weekly or a monthly basis, you will naturally, I think, as if like, if you never wear a pair of trousers, it will go to the bottom of the drawer. Like, I think if you never hear about this and it comes up every six months by someone up top saying, why is confluence everything? He's like, well, because I've got other stuff to do and my manager's putting my time on that. So I think what Arno said, actually putting it in the diary, hey, this is an expectation. Um, and if you don't do it, I think, yeah, just slate people. Just tell them off. It's like, hey, like we need to do this. Like other people are doing it. And I think if no one is doing it, that's where it's like really hard. But when you have two or three people doing it, I think that's where it's like, it's like, hey, come on, like get up. I think you just, and obviously lead by example. That's another easy thing. If you can do it and you're telling someone else to do it and you haven't done it, yeah, maybe start there. Uh, Arno. Yeah, actually, your example of that contractor who started a, a wiki for documentation is a great example of uh, how terrible it is when you join a company and there is no official documentation structure in place. There are no guidelines, uh, nothing. Uh, and on the other hand, I've been in some companies in which it was even part of the company culture. Uh, everything needs to be documented. And uh, that's interesting that very often that kind of stuff comes from people from outside of the gaming industry. Like if you, if you look at people who have been uh, working in aeronautics, for example, like people from Airbus, for example, um, they have to document everything. Actually, most of the, their job as a programmer at Airbus is all about documenting your work. You document everything before you do it. And once documentation has been approved and is strong enough, then you start committing some code to the project. And those people are much better in general with knowledge management. And whenever you, you join a company which was started by people from outside the gaming industry, they have much more awareness of those problems, those issues, and they usually make it part of the company culture that everything needs to be documented. Documentation has a proper structure in place, only one platform, a wiki or Google Docs or whatever, with very clear categories in there. And there are guidelines for how you post and you, you, you uh, expand the documentation. And that is really, really good. And it's such a productivity saver on the long term. That's hard to imagine uh, how, how it helps, actually. Yeah, I don't know. These are really good uh, answers. So thank you for that. I, we have, I've had this over the last year and a half, me at Evolution, because we have something called SharePoint. It's like Microsoft version of this, basically. And this is super valuable for people joining the business. If they don't have it, they'd be lost and training would cost a lot more. It'd be a lot more one-to-one, -one, right? But after training, this is what I've told like learning and development here is like, I have no reason to go to SharePoint. I've got too many things to do. And it's not like when you open your phone and you see your notifications, like I'm not going to swipe, swipe to SharePoint. It's like, oh, I have time to read this today. It's not going to happen. So literally, I now, when I have like, for example, a document that I used to go to, I've put it there. So then I can actually go to SharePoint and like log into it. I think it just comes back to if you're not getting praised for putting stuff on SharePoint, then you're not going to do it. Or like if you're not getting, if it's not one of your KPIs, I use the word, like you just needs to be part of the, like, yeah, I think, I think it's just one of those things where either your direct report just needs to like bring up and like, this is the value we're doing this. I know it's not benefiting you, but hey, remember that thing you did like three months ago that you went on SharePoint for like, and hopefully you build a snowball effect. Uh, Lloyd, I think uh, Arno mentioned it. Like it's company culture. It stems from there. 
uh, it, it seems. So, you know, like it's, it is something that we're seeing more and more in the industry now. And this mobile industry is growing. Um, so, yeah, like I, I think that's where it must stem from. You need to have the time to do the, the to put the knowledge there. You need to have the time to go get the knowledge and, you know, maybe have a, you know, half a day or a week to go through and uh, learn something that, you know, you need to have that built in. Um, so, yeah, but it's a great initiative. I had a live podcast with Murad, who was on Producer Playbook, basically. And he shared something they did. He introduced that tactile, which was really cool, which I think as a producer, you can proactively basically see if you see a new way of working that one of your team members have done or something you've seen or something you've done yourself. Uh, if you have one of those things, you basically just prompt it. Hey, let's do a masterclass on this. Let's just book a meeting, half an hour, invite everyone, optional, and record it and just say, this is the topic, this is who it's for. And he found that's very, very useful because if an artist talks about one of their processes, they might have actually a game designer or a developer actually tune in and to see the way they're working. And I think video is something that's a bit easier to engage with, we can all agree, rather than like reading a 900 word essay, right? So I feel like having that video in the background while you're doing some work, like when you're on TikTok, like you see those videos where they have like two videos at once, I think humans can do two stuff at once. I feel like, oh, I don't have time to dedicate half an hour to reading. But I'll put this masterclass on while I'm doing my research. I think that might just get a bit more buy-in because it's just a bit easier. Um, basically, remove obstacles to learning. Available on demand, blah, blah, blah. I think that's another idea. Lovely. I'll conclude you there, guys. Um, this was fantastic. This has been the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. And I want to take this opportunity to thank Lloyd, Nikki, Zach, and Arno for their insights. And thank you everyone at home for listening. If you'd like to get involved in an upcoming podcast or just want to chat, you can reach out to us at LinkedIn at Evolution Recruitment Gaming or me at Harry Foku, Foku spelled P-H-O-K-O-U.